momentarily. No, that's not it. Okay. There we go. Now read this out loud with me as you hold your Bible up. Unless you're blocking somebody's view. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, say complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thank you, Lord, for your word today, that it's alive, that it's powerful, that it is it's going to make the difference in our life. It makes a difference in our lives. Amen. All right. You may be seated. Now, if you don't own a Bible, uh, don't leave home without one. Or don't leave church without one. I think we have them under the chairs. If you, don't, if you honestly don't own a Bible, we will give you a Bible. Uh, I don't want anybody to leave here today that said, well, I don't have a Bible. Because most of us have 10 or 12 or 15 in our home. And if we started having a hand count, you could, you know, a lot. Of, how many of you have 10 Bibles? Yeah, see, a lot of you. So give those things away. Uh, unless, there, there, unless there's some, some attachment that you have to them, uh, share your Bibles. Um, we all need the Word of God in us, right? So that's what I'm talking about today. If we're going to be thoroughly equipped for every good work, we need to know the Word. Next week, because I don't believe in separating the Word and the Spirit, the power and the, and the Word, uh, because we are a power and word church. If you don't know what that means, is we are. We do believe in the gifts. We believe in, in uh, all the gifts, and we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but we don't believe in that exclusive from the Word. They all they work together perfectly. You can't have one without the other, but some churches kind of, they emphasize one and then, or they emphasize the other. We emphasize both because you need both, okay? Are you with me this morning? Say, I'm with you, Pastor. Okay. I want you all to dance with me this morning. Y'all ready to dance? Wow, you are free. Cool. We're going to start at 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this, I'm going to set it up a little bit. Paul is the Apostle Paul. See, the Apostle Paul. And he was, a, he was a man that was actually against God in the form or against Jesus. And he was going to try to, he was trying to arrest Christians and have them thrown into jail and uh, later to be murdered or be killed because he believed that they were uh, heretics. And so God met him. Jesus met him on the road as he's kind of a bounty hunter. He had orders to go and pick up some more Christians that were on the loose. And he had, and he, on, the right, on the way to this place that he was going, Jesus met him on this road and uh, changed his life forever. And so Paul is, is a, he, he begins this walk with God. He goes and gets along with God and God downloads all this, all this information to him. And he goes and begins to start churches all over what's then now known as Greece and Turkey and, and all the way to Rome. He would establish churches and he would go back and check on churches. And one of the churches he established was where Timothy was a pastor. Now, Timothy is a lot of people, if you do some biblical or uh, historical studies, he's probably one of the, he's considered one of the first pastors of a mega church. Hundreds and even they believe thousands of people were under his ministry. He was a young pastor, and so he, had, uh, he was in the time of Nero, and Nero was the, was the, the, uh, the, the emperor the, of, of uh, Rome, and he hated Christians. As a matter of fact, he blamed Christians for burning down Rome. And he was, if you think uh, that the uh, Islamic, the ISIS, if you think ISIS is cruel, you should have lived back in that day because it, it was, it, they were more cruel. That's impossible. They would dip Christians in oil and set them on fire to light the way to the palace. He thought that was a cool thing to do. They, they had them thrown into lion's dens and 
uh, horrible things were done to Christians. And so here's Timothy. He's a pastor, and all this is going on around him. And he's having to take care of all these people. And Paul's trying to encourage pa- uh, pa- uh, Pastor Timothy. And that's why he wrote, one, one time he wrote him, he said, Do not, God didn't give you the spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. He said, don't give up, Timothy. I know it looks bleak. I know it looks tough. I know uh, what you're doing is a difficult thing. But he said, don't give up. So he's encouraging him, and he's writing him this letter, these letters, these two letters. And so I want you to look at this letter he's writing to him. We're going to look at chapter 3. And he says, but know this, Timothy, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Last, say the last days. Now, the, the word perilous means this. It means hard to do, to take, to approach, hard to bear, troublesome, dangerous, harsh, fierce, savage, savage. And this is what it will look like in perilous times. I don't know if you know this, but it looks like we're in perilous times today. Maybe not so much in America, which is kind of working its way here, but across the world that we look like we're in perilous times. Wouldn't you agree? The enemy's working overtime to destroy and defeat Christians. And he was writing this to Timothy, and Timothy said, well, we're in perilous times too. Paul knew that. So the age, the church age, when we think of the last days, he was thinking last days back then, 2,000 years ago. So things have just progressively it's, it have gotten worse. And we live in the day and the age which we believe, and I believe that we are in the last days. I believe that. I don't know how many of you believe that by the signs of the times. It looks like we're in the last days. So he's telling Timothy, hey, perilous times are coming. Verse 2 says, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of God, Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow, isn't that a good place to live? No. Some people consider the number one sin that Christians can be involved in is selfishness. And selfishness really boils down to idolatry. Did you know that? God says, you shall have no other gods before me. But we, in America and across the world, people have made themselves gods, little gods. Because they are on the throne of their life. They make all the decisions that they want to make concerning their lives. They don't consult anybody. They don't consult God. And so they make themselves, idol- they make themselves their own gods or idolaters. And that's selfishness to the, to, the, to the worst degree. Selfishness. And look, it says, for men will be lovers of themselves. Look at all the things he says that, the, that people are going to be. Does that not look like our nation today? Man, you, you could pull out every verse and you could go and figure out, hey, this looks like America. Every word, every phrase, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, brutal, despite, lovers of pleasure. All these things are talking about a self-love. It's not a love. God called us to love ourselves, as, love our neighbors as we love ourselves, but not in the sense that he's talking about here. This is a prideful, selfish love, an idolatrous love he's talking about, and it's Evident in our society today. But wait, there's more. Look at verse 5. Verse, just the first part of verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying his power. That's the scary verse to me. All those other things, yeah. I, I, you know, we can kind of figure those people out. You can kind of know those people that are just selfish, they're prideful, they're arrogant, they're rude, all that stuff. You can kind of pick those people out and kind of want to stay away from them, right? But he says it goes further than that. They have a what? A form of godliness. They kind of look godly. They, have, they, they might have the right language, but they deny the power. They're, what he's talking about, they're denying the power of God. They're denying the power of the Word of God. 
And so they're living a life of idolatry. They're living a life of hypocrisy. So if you're taking notes for the, past, for the life groups, that's going to be probably one of, the, one of the questions. They have a form of godliness but denies power, and it's, that's the ultimate in hypocrisy. Now I want to quote some, uh, some statistics. I'm not a statistic-type preacher, but I want to share some statistics quickly from the new book by Jim Cimbala called The Storm. Anybody know who Jim Cimbala is? He's the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle. He has a church there of 10,000, started with about 17, I believe, in a little rundown building in Brooklyn. He's a white pastor with a mostly black church. He had a call in his heart. He had no seminary training. He just knew God called him to do that. And he went there and he said, I don't care who you are, what you look like, how you smell, where you've been, what you do. He said, God's calling you. And he has a choir. If you heard the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, it's a famous choir. His wife has no, uh, no musical training. God called her to do that. They, in their choir, they have uh, attorneys and doctors and ex-prostitutes and ex-addicts and everybody else. He said, I don't care what your color is. I don't care what you look like, smell. He said, God's called you and he wants you. And he's, he's, that's been his purpose. That, and his books are full of just testimonies of the lives that God has transformed. But he's written a book, and it's called The Storm. I'm, read his books. His books will inspire you. It's called The Storm. And he's in uh, uh, the 26th floor of his Brooklyn apartment. His wife's in Nashville. They're recording a new CD. And Sandy's about to hit the shore in New York. Anybody remember Sandy? It was a horrible, horrible storm. Killed hundreds and hundreds of people devastated the property all around on the on the east coast and he said he was out there and the wind was blowing he said i didn't know if this this building would stand but he said the most eerie thing he saw was he looked across at the the skyline of new york city and he said the skyline of new york city was like his compass you know it's like the sailors when they look at the stars and they gauge where they're at he said i could look at it and i'd know right where i was and i knew how to get to where i needed to go because i could see the skyline of new york city and he said all of a sudden it went dark And he said it was eerie to see the darkness over there where there once had been light. And he said that is kind of like what's happening in America with the church. Where there once was light and people knew that they could go there and they would find the truth. And they would be led by the truth and the truth would be spoken. And he said all of a sudden it's getting dim. It's getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. But Jesus said that we are the light of the world. We're the light of the world. So it's our obligation, it's our responsibility, it's our, it's our privilege to carry the light. And when we carry the Word of God, we're carrying the light. Today we're going to be talking about the Word of God and the importance of having the Word of God. I want to give you some statistics. He, he went and he did research and had other people do research for him. He said there was a website that said out of the 330 or so million people in America, that 246,780,000 people claim to be Christians. That's like 79.5% of everybody that lives in America claims to be Christians. Do you believe that? Here's the deal. If that was true, we wouldn't be putting up with some of the things that we're putting up with. We wouldn't be going through some of the things we're going through. Prayer would still be in our schools. Abortion would still be illegal. Homosexual marriages would not be legalized. I don't think. 79.5% of Americans claim to be Christians. If that were true, the culture would look somewhat different, wouldn't it? John Dickerson wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Recession. And he wanted to take a look at these exaggerated statistics. He wanted to be... 
He said, you know, I don't think that's right. He said, so let me do. So he took four different groups and they did four different studies and they did four different methodologies. And their agenda was just, we want to find out what these statistics really look like. And after they did all this survey and they came to, uh, the four different groups came to a unanimous decision. And this is going to shock you. Their, Their conclusion was that the actual number of evangelical Christians is shockingly, let me explain evangelical first. Evangelical Christians are what we are. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. There are no other ways. There's no other roads. You can't be a Christian Buddhist. Sorry. I'm just saying. I heard that this week. Somebody said, yeah, I'm a Christian Buddhist. Really? How's that working for you? You know? Evangelicals believe we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. We believe that He died for us; that he, the sins were nailed on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit to us. We believe that this Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. It's God inspired. His Holy Spirit inspired everything, and it's true. Listen, if if there's one lie in here, then the whole thing's a lie. But it's all true. It's all for us, evangelical Christians. He said. After their study, they came to the conclusion that in the United States of America, the percentage of our population that is truly evangelical Christians is 7 to possibly 8.9% of America. That should cause a, yeah, what I just heard. Whoa. That's probably much more accurate than what we perceive in our mind. It's awesome to think, oh, we're a Christian nation. Yeah, we were. But we're not. We're on the decline. Kids, once they get their car keys, they leave church. They don't have to be, you can graduate, just get the car keys. And they, they want to be, they want to be away from the, the church. You know why? Because they're not seeing the real church. They're not seeing the picture that God has painted for us as a, as a body of Christ. So many churches have a form of godliness, but there's no power. There's no love. There's no outreach. There's no evangelism. You know, you've heard Don Babin say he goes to these churches. They don't even do altar calls anymore. They don't even ask people, do you know Jesus? We, let us show you how to find Jesus. They don't even do that anymore. They give you a good three points and say, go and be, be well fed and have a nice day. Guys, we're not going to be about that. We, we're going to preach the truth in love. And we're going to walk out of these places empowered to, the, the, to do the business, that the kingdom business that God's called us to do. And we're going to do it in love. Turn to, uh, well, we're going to look at verse 5. Be aware of your surroundings. Here's Paul's advice to Timothy when he talked about all these people. He said, and from such people... Turn away. Those people that are full of themselves, that have a form of godliness, but they don't have the power of God, they deny the power of God. He said, from these people, run! Leave them! I told them the first service, and I believe this is going to be true in this service, a lot more people in here than there were in the first service. Some of you are probably in unholy alliances. Some of you are hanging out with the wrong people. 
Some of you have accepted other people into your life that, that should not be in your life because they're doing nothing but dragging you down. You're not pulling them up. They're pulling you down. Did you know it's much easier to pull somebody up and pull somebody down than to pull somebody up? That's right. If I'm standing here and you're there and you want to get me off this stage and I read you reach down and shake my hand, you can pull me down pretty quick. But for me to pull you back up here, a little bit harder. You need to understand and be aware of your surroundings because there's all manner of teaching that's going on outside here. The Internet, what you're watching on television, what you're reading in the papers, but mostly it comes from your, those other friends that claim to be something, but they're really not what you would know that they're, you, you know that they're not really believers. And they want to give you the little mixing. You know, if you mix a little bit of lie with a lot of truth, you know what you got? A lie. You got a lie. In the Barna group, they found out that 46%, this is the one, that the couple that got Mary Lou and I, 46% of churchgoers said that their life had not changed at all as a result of going to church. Well, no wonder people are leaving church. If there's nothing's changed in their life, if they, if they come here and they leave and there's nothing different about them, if they haven't learned anything, no truths have been imparted to them, and they just come and they, they sit and they, they sing and they kind of like the music. Maybe they'll keep coming back because the music's good. But if they just come and go and come and go and there's nothing's changed in their life, he said 60, 46% of churchgoers said that there's nothing ever changed in their life. Isn't that a sad indictment on the church? And on top of that, three out of five church attenders, 61% said that they could not remember a significant new insight gained by attending church services. And what is even more bothersome than that is that one-third of those who attended church said they never experienced or felt the presence of God. Some of you this morning experienced the presence of God. Hopefully all of you did. You experienced it. It's tangible. He's real. It's not something out there that you can't feel. God is a God of feelings. Uh, Well, I'm just going by faith and fact. Well, that's cool. Faith is awesome. But God gave us feelings and emotions too. You know those little goosebump things, you know, you feel like? God gave you those. So I pray that today you are in the presence, you've been already experienced the presence of God. That you walk out of here and go, wow, I needed to be there. I needed to hear that. First Corinthians, getting back to this turning away, running away from people that are not of like minds, unholy alliances. That could be your business partner, too, by the way. Or you might even be considering going to business with somebody and they're not even believers. I would tell you this. Don't do it. It's tough enough getting along with somebody that's a Christian in a business. Amen. OK. They're not going to share your principles. They're not. Do not be deceived. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says evil company corrupts good habits. I'm just going to pray right now that the Holy Spirit, if there's an unholy alliance that you're involved in. Now, if you're already married, it's too late. (laughs) You're going to have to let the Holy Spirit fix that. I'm I'm, I'm serious. What does Ron say? I'm 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 not being funny. I'm serious. Is that pretty good? Yeah, you hear me? Yeah. 
That's the will of God. Okay. Some of you are in unholy alliances or you're thinking about getting into an unholy alliance. Listen, you need to pray and ask the direction of the Holy Spirit. That's all I'm going to say about that. Verse 6, for this sort, he's talking about creeps here. For this sort are those who creep into households and make captive of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of truth. You see, there are people that want a smorgasbord religion. They want the they want the Bible to say what they want it to say. And they might as well take the Bible and rip out the pages that they don't agree with and make it say what they want it to say. I remember Wes did that for a youth, and some people were like going, ah, he tore a page. He was trying to make a point. But that's what we do. We don't like this. Oh, he said to repent. I don't like that. Whoosh, rip it out. He said to love my enemies. Oh, I sure hate that. Whoosh, rip that out. Bless those who persecute me. Really? Whoosh, nah, I don't like that. And we take out what we don't like. Oh, Jesus is the only way. He's the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through him. Let's take out John 14. Because I think there's many ways, you know. Famous people have said that. There are many ways to heaven. Wow. Aren't they going to be surprised? But she said. (laughs) Look at verse 8. Now it's Janus and Jambres. And this is kind of interesting couple of guys. Janus and Jammers resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, hallelujah, uh, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. Their folly was manifested to all. Let me explain who Janus and Jammers are, because if you go do a word search, you're only going to find them right there. It's the only place you'll find them. You're not going to find them in the Old Testament, because it's, it's, it's historical uh, facts that were passed down from generation to generation. So they talked about these two guys, and they probably made fun of Janus and Jambres. Now, remember when Aaron and Moses went before Pharaoh, and, and, and God said, throw down your rod, and it came to snake and all that? Y'all remember that, that story? And the plagues? Well, Janus and Jambres were the bad guys. They were the, the sorcerers or the magicians for Pharaoh. And so they were doing the same parlor. They, they looked like tricks. They, they thought they were going to outdo the tricks of Aaron and Moses or God. And yet they weren't tricks. They were doing the real deal. It was evil what they were doing. It was by the power behind them to do what they were doing with Satan. But God showed himself faithful when Aaron's rod ate theirs. You snapped them up. So Janus and Jambres were, were rebelling against God under the authority of Pharaoh, not listening to God, and they were shown to be in the wrong, right? They were shown that our, my God is more powerful than your God. So Janus and Jambres, they, he brings them up here. He says, they resisted the truth. They were men of corrupt minds. They disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as Janus and Jambres' folly was evident to all. You know, probably the rest of their life, they went around talking about how their, their, their snake got eaten by the other snake. How God, their, the God of Moses and Aaron was bigger than their God. Listen, last days, 2 Thessalonians 2.9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. With what? All power, signs, and lying wonders. You don't think Satan in the last days is going to try to duplicate the miracles that God's doing. He's going to do that, guys. He's going to try to deceive everybody. He's going to try to deceive the church. 
He's going to try to deceive the world with lying signs and wonders. Listen, the enemy has power, but God has more power. The enemy is on a leash, and it's a short leash. But we've got to know the truth so we will understand and recognize the counterfeit. And the only way you're going to know the truth is to study this. It's the only way. Amen? Verse 10. This is Paul again. He's talking to his little brother Timothy, Pastor Timothy. He says, Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine, my teaching. You've watched watched my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, were persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's a, that's a good sermon to preach. If you desire to live a godly life, you're going to suffer persecution. Now, it might be your persecution might be people making fun of you at school or at work. Right? But it could become worse, and we're probably going to become worse before it becomes better. But here's what, here's what I want you to see. Paul said, basically what he's saying in these verses right here is, is, Timothy, what I taught you, I have lived. The things that I've taught you, my doctrine, I have lived, even with persecutions, even when the shipwrecks, even when the snake bit me, all the things that have happened to me, said everything that I've gone through, I have lived out the word that I have spoken to you, that I have taught you, Timothy. And I'm telling you this morning, here's here's a challenge to you. Are you living the word that you speak? Are you living the word that you say is true? Are you allowing Christ to live through you in power? Could you write a letter that said, I want my children to live just the way I live. And would it mean anything to your kids? See, we like, we were brought up in America, and especially us tough guys, man, we were brought up in there. Our daddy said, don't do as I say. Do, I mean, don't do as I do. Do as I say. Don't do, don't do as I do. Just do as I say. You don't have any choice. You've got to do what I tell you to do, boy. We've been taught that, right? Yeah, somebody, yeah my dad taught me that. <laughs> but that's hypocrisy. Dads, if you're, if you're telling your kids, don't do that, and then you do it, what are you telling them? You're giving them mixed signals. Belinda was sharing this morning. She just got back from Christ for the Nations. She said, by the age of 11, all the moral thoughts and all the moral uh, um, plans that in our life are set by the age of 11. All the moral principles are set by the age of 11 in every child. Can you imagine that? What you teach your kids up to the age of 11, man, that's going to be, that's the law for them for the rest of their life unless God intervenes. So we wonder why our kids are rebellious when they do things that we can't imagine why they're doing that. Because you taught them that. I taught them that. We taught them that. Hallelujah. That's good. Paul said, Timothy, everything I'm teaching you, I'm living it. That should be our mandate. Amen. I mean, if, you, if you're teaching it, live it. Don't give your kids mixed signals. Let your lifestyle line up with the Word of God. Here's what he said in here. He said, you've carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose. Listen, you're, look what Paul's saying. My long-suffering, my love, my perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, everything that's happened to me. He said, Timothy, you've seen it. And you know I'm, I'm living that life. Man, I hope that we can all say that. I hope we can all say that. Verse 15, uh, 13, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, 
but say, but me. <laughs> but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. How many parents do we have here this morning with kids still at home? Okay. You have a Bible? How many of you have a Bible? Raise your hand. Read it to your children. Read it to your children. I still go back. I, I learned the Bible stories because my mom said, boys, girls, get in here. It's time for me for our devotion. How many of you tried to start devotions and they fizzled out after about three days when you were pull your hair out? You start them again. You feel like a failure. You start them again. You finally just give up on them. These kids just don't want to listen, you know. But my mother, she was very uh, staunch in her faith. And she would call us in when we'd come to the bedroom and we would kneel down to pray by the bed. But before we would kneel and pray, she would get out that big book, that Eggemeyer's, whatever, a little bit. No, no, we had the big book too. Had, but the cool part of the big book was that it had the slick color pages. Anybody know? See, I'm dating myself. And you'd look at those pictures and she'd show you the picture of David and Goliath. And you go, wow, that's cool. And then she would read the story in children's language. And you'd learn about David and Goliath. You'd learn about Noah and the ark. You'd, ran, you'd learn about Daniel and the lion's den. See, I talk about things like that today. I said, well, you all know that about Daniel and the lion's den. And people go, huh? There's like this little thing over their head with nothing in it. Because we haven't been taught. Children haven't been taught. But the, the mandate is the challenge for us parents is that we would do that to our children. We would teach our children. We'd get that book out and we'd read the Bible stories. Let them learn. That's what Timothy was talking about. Paul was talking about here. He said, Timothy, you've learned from your grandparents and your mother. They taught you the word of God. You need to go back and grab hold of that. You need, you're anchored in it. You need to hold on to the word. And then he says this in verse 16, that our, our, our text for today. All scripture. All scripture. And then I could go back and show you other verses that talk about how the New Testament became scripture. There are several scriptures in here that talk about the Gospels being part of Scripture, that the Epistles being part of Scripture. All of the things that we look at today that we call the New Testament is included in this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture. And God doesn't make mistakes, okay? And it is profitable for doctrine, which is teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Guys, if you don't have this in your heart, if you're not learning this, you're not going to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's just the truth. That's the word of God this morning. This is our, this is our sword. This is our armor. This is our roadmap. This is everything that we need. Would y'all agree to that? Even most of Americans believe that the Bible has, it has great teachings in it. And they're very meaningful. If you follow the guidelines in this book, they say you'll live a successful life. Most of even Americans believe that. It's a good book. But we understand it more than being a good book. It's a love letter from Jesus, from God. It's, it is Jesus. Jesus said, the word became flesh and dwelt among you. This is Jesus. This is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And without him, without this, guys, we will fail. We will fall. And we will not be able to teach our children the truth. First Timothy 1.18 says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. You see, some people wake up in the morning and they start having a conversation with the devil. Quit doing that if you're doing that. Wake up and have a conversation with God. Quit focusing on the enemy. Listen, the more you focus on the enemy, the less you're focusing on God. Wake up in the morning and begin to declare, I'm going to fight the good fight of faith today with the word of God. See, that's the only fight the Bible ever tells us to fight. It didn't say we're supposed to go fight the devil. We resist him. Right? Look at Ephesians chapter 6. I want to show you what this is a weapon. This is our weapon that we have. Uh, It talks about putting on the armor. Most of you know about Ephesians 6. It talks about the spiritual warfare that we engage in, which is real. But the way we engage in the warfare is by putting on the armor. And he says to do this, stand, therefore. He didn't say run. He didn't say attack. He says stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel, this, of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will quench what? Every fiery dart of the wicked one or the enemy, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The sword of the, This is your sword. And it cuts both ways. We'll look at that in a minute, Hebrews 4. It cuts both ways. But we have a lot of Christians that have a sword in their hand, but they don't know what to do with the sword. It's like giving your kid, it's like giving a kid, a a, a kindergartner, a weapon, and they have no idea how to use it. Would you give them a weapon, a loaded gun, if they didn't know what to do with it? Of course not. Would you give them a sharp knife to play with? Seriously? Are you not going to answer that? Well, I'm thinking about it, and I don't know. Son, no. You weren't going to give your son a sharp knife to play with, would you? Okay. You're going to instruct them. If if that time comes when you're going to teach them, you'll instruct them how to use the knife or how to use the gun. Right? Shake it. Okay. The same holds true for this weapon. We need to teach and be taught of how to use this weapon. And you you can't teach it. You can't learn it unless you get into it. It's the word of God. He says, and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying. always couple it with all these other things. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Next week, we're going to talk about empowered and how the word, when it's coupled and empowered with the spirit, becomes a dynamic force. A dynamic force. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and powerful. Say living and powerful. And sharper than any two-edged 